0: You've been loading up on things from Walmart. Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. (laughs) Say what now? 5% 5 back. back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online, on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Before we begin, I'd like to apologize. I am getting over a cold, and my voice is just not where it should be. So please bear with me this week as I work through this. Do you remember the summer before high school, when you felt like you were so grown up and ready for anything, looking across that wide expanse of summer and wanting it to last forever, but also excited and nervous about the new adventure that lay before you? For Hilary Norskog, that was the summer of 1993. With eighth grade graduation behind her, Hillary was headed for Amos Alonzo Stagg High School, or Stag High The school opened in 1964 and was named for noted University of Chicago football coach Amos Alonzo Stagg. He was selected, quote, in recognition of his century of devotion to young men to help them understand the powers that they possess. If you're a football fan, Stagg is responsible for many innovations in the game, including, but not limited to, the huddle, T-formation, man-in-motion, quarterback-keeper, and padded goalposts. Let's get back to Hillary. She was tiny and energetic, a wisp of a girl at five feet tall and eighty pounds, with gorgeous waist-length black hair. Hillary was the youngest of three children. She had an older half-brother and half-sister from her mother's first marriage. In 1993, Hillary's siblings were both in their 20s and out on their own. Hillary's parents never married, and her father had little involvement in her life, making Hillary and her mother, Marcia especially close. So close that Hillary didn't mind her mom meeting a new boy that she was sweet on. 17-year-old Stephen Feal Feal came to Hillary's house on two separate occasions, stealing a kiss from Hillary during one visit. It was her first kiss, and she was giddy as she told friends about it. Stephen and Hillary met through the older brother of one of Hillary's friends. I don't think Marcia would have allowed him near her daughter if she knew that days earlier, on July 3rd, Stephen was arrested for drug and alcohol possession in front of his Palos Park home. Marcia also didn't know that Stephen was given a hunting knife. It was a gift from his parents a knife he kept stashed under the driver's seat of his car. On July 14th, as Marcia watched her daughter head out with friends, she knew none of these things. Hillary told her mom she'd be with friends and would likely sleep over at her friend's house that night. If she wasn't sleeping over, Hillary knew she had to be home by her 10.30 p.m. curfew. Hillary did not make it home that night. The next morning, Marcia tried to check in with her daughter. It's 1993. People don't have cell phones, and rarely do teenagers carry pagers. Not yet, anyway, and not that young. Hillary wasn't at the house where Marcia thought she said she'd stay. So she called one friend, and then another. But she could not find her daughter. The story she heard time and again from Hillary's friends is that she should be home. Hillary left the group just after 10 p.m., not wanting to be late, knowing that she needed to be home by 10.30, and Hillary was last seen driving away with 17-year-old Stephen Feal. Marcia tracked down Stephen's number and called his house. Stephen told her he'd dropped Hillary off at her home, but didn't know where she went after that. When Marcia pointed out to him that her daughter never made it home, Stephen said, I don't know, and he ended the call. Marcia called back, trying to get more details, to wrench the truth from the young man. Eventually, Stephen's mother answered the phone and told Marcia to stop badgering her son. On July 16th, police paid a visit to the field residence, a 3,500-square-foot home on more than an acre of land, located 30 minutes from the heart of Chicago. Their spacious home was a far cry from the two-bedroom apartment Marcia shared with her teenage daughter. Stephen told police he didn't know where Hillary was, that he'd taken her home as she'd requested. Police asked to look at Stephen's car, and the feels agreed. They let the police have access to the 1988 Chevy that Stephen drove that night. Police then asked that the car be brought to the police station so their tracking dog could try and get Hillary's sent from the passenger seat. The Fields agreed, and Stephen's mother drove the car to the police department herself. Opening the car door to give the dog access, police noticed stains on the passenger seat. They asked Stephen the source of the stains, and he responded that he'd spilled Kool Aid in the vehicle days earlier. Law enforcement asked to take samples from the upholstery, and the fields agreed. Two days later, police learned the truth. The interior of Stephen's car was splattered with blood. As police are learning from the lab that those are bloodstains in the car, not Kool-Aid, as Stephen said, there is another bombshell. A couple out for a walk discovered Hillary's remains in a vacant lot near 127th Street. Hillary Norskag, forever 13, just nine days shy of her 14th birthday. When police return to the field home, they find Stephen in the garage working on his car. He's taken out the front seats and is scrubbing the upholstery. Stephen is arrested for the murder of Hilary Norskog. In the days following his arrest, his mother Gail takes his 11-year-old sister to Indiana to visit family, keeping her from the harsh spotlight on the middle child, Stephen Feel. We've come a long way in this story, but things are about to get very strange, twisted, disturbing. Come with me as we explore the death of Hillary Norskog and how things for the Feel family have only begun to fall apart. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ladies, putting on good underwear in the morning is a key part of owning your day. Good underwear helps you feel confident, powerful, sexy, and ready to conquer the world. When they told me that me-undies are the most comfortable underwear you'll ever own, I thought, nah, and then i tried them myself soft stylish and so comfortable whether you prefer a traditional bikini the modest boy short or a cheeky thong there's a style pattern and fit just for you me undies is so sure you will love their underwear they even offer a 100 percent satisfaction guarantee and if you don't love your first pair you get a full refund this is a limited time offer so what are you waiting for Start wearing the best underwear of your life. It changed my life, and it's time to let MeUndies change yours. Go to MeUndies.com slash gone right now. You get 20% off, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. What are you waiting for? That's MeUndies.com slash gone. You need to know that Hillary Norskog died a brutal death. I know, we hear this a lot when discussing murder, but this small girl, five feet tall, eighty pounds, she was stabbed more than a dozen times with a hunting knife, with most of the blows landing on her face and head. She was so disfigured by the attack that her mother was not permitted to view her remains. Decomposition was advanced and the coroner's office confirmed Hillary's identity using dental records. When her body was discovered, Hillary was still dressed in the Jurassic Park t-shirt her mother described to law enforcement when she filed the missing persons report. Hillary's remains were cremated once the coroner's office was done with the autopsy. Her loved ones won't learn about the defensive wounds on her hands or how hard she fought for her life until pre-trial motions that are nearly a year away. On July 20th, 17-year-old Stephen Thiel is formally charged with Hillary's murder. He is booked into the Cook County Jail, where he will remain for months. His parents, Roger Sr. and Gail, are public in their support of their son. They believe in his innocence. The Thiels are at every court hearing, standing behind their youngest boy, His older brother, Roger, spoke out. He defended Stephen against negative comments. Roger Jr. was vocal about his brother's innocence. Stephen's family defended him despite overwhelming evidence against him. He was the last person seen with Hillary. Several teens saw her leave with him in his car. When police searched the field home, they leave with a pile of evidence. They found a hunting knife they suspect is the murder weapon— Blood-stained clothing, including a hat, socks, and a shirt, all belonging to Stephen, plus the blood they found in his car. Meanwhile, the public cannot get enough of this story. A boy from a good family, a pretty dark-haired teenager and her attractive single mother, and a violent murder. Marcia Norskog faces criticism for letting her daughter go out that night. As if she were somehow negligent for letting a teenage girl hang out with her friends on a summer night, with a 10.30 curfew, no less. As police interview friends of Stephen and Hillary, a troubling picture of Stephen emerges. Allegations include that he'd been suspended from school several times the previous academic year. There were stories that while in elementary school, Stephen was assigned his own private bus stop after allegations of bullying and violence towards other children. His arrest for drug and alcohol possession earlier that summer was a matter of public record. Despite a string of bad behaviors, Stephen's activities were not curtailed. He had a luxurious bedroom equipped with a pool table. His parents kept a well-stocked liquor cabinet, and numerous reports say that both Roger and Stephen, who were underage, regularly helped themselves to the contents without consequence. We spoke briefly about the house that Stephen lived in, a 3,500-square-foot home on about an acre of land. The field house was really nice. It was a large house, well-appointed. I mentioned the pool table in Stephen's bedroom— The house also had a half-pipe, so the boys could skateboard. Palace Park was a nice area, an exclusive bedroom community. Their mother, Gail, stayed home with the children. The three feel kids wanted for nothing. Both the feel boys had cars. Stephen drove a Chevy, the one he told police was stained with Kool-Aid. And then there were weapons. There were several guns in the feel home, his father had shotguns and rifles that he sometimes hunted with. Stephen's friends said the guns were not secure and that Stephen brought them to parties on more than one occasion. Then there's the hunting knife. I've read that it was a gift from his parents on his June birthday, and Stephen kept it sheathed and stashed under the driver's seat of his car. In the weeks before Hillary's murder, Stephen was out with his friend Ed, Ed. At one point, Stephen reached under the driver's seat of his car, pulled out the knife, unsheathed it, and showed it to his friend, saying, Wouldn't it be cool to stab someone in the head with this? After Stephen was arrested, Ed shared stories of taking turns hood surfing on their cars, one of them driving at high speeds while the other held on to the hood. Ed also recalled Stephen flying into a rage one day and using the pool cue from his bedroom to smash the speakers on his stereo. When asked about the incident a day later, Stephen denied that it happened. As police investigate Hillary's murder and the prosecutor assembles a case against Stephen, the rumor mill at Stag High School works overtime. Stephen's friends and Hillary's friends, plus hundreds of curious classmates, wondering, would Stephen return to school in September. They could all agree that they were shocked by the brutality of the crime, that a violent death could happen to someone in their own circle. Would Stephen return? As students speculated and the summer wound to a close, Stephen waited in the protective custody wing of the Cook County Jail. Marcia Norskog was grief-stricken after the murder of her youngest child, but she didn't grieve alone. Always popular with her daughter's friends, Her apartment was a revolving door of children that craved contact and needed to grieve. They received and gave comfort by spending time with Hillary's devastated mother. While Marcia was grieving and helping others grieve, the Field family was securing an attorney for their son who was in protective custody due to his age and the nature of his crime. The Field attorney, Raymond Pigeon, started on the offensive, commenting to the press that his client's right to a fair trial was hampered by public opinion and the rumor mill. Pijan spoke of the tribulations of Stephen's family, that they couldn't get their story out in the media because of bias, and they were being harassed by people in the community. He described the attacks on the family as, quote, relentless. While Pijan told the press of threatening phone calls and run-ins with neighbors and in the community the Field family never filed a report with the Palos Park Police, never reported any incidents of harassment or mistreatment by people in the community. Stephen remained in jail for months. He wasn't bailed out until October. The stay in jail was a move his family described as necessary, that for his own safety and for the safety of the family, the best place for him to be was behind bars. Once things settled down, After he'd served about 90 days, they put up the $100,000 cash bond required to free him. In December of 1993, the Fields asked the court that they be allowed to move. Their attorney said they were, quote, seeking relief from ongoing, quote, discourteous remarks directed not just at Stephen's parents, but at his older brother and younger sister, The Fields alleged that the harassment was so bad they needed to move away. Not just out of Palace Park, they wanted to move out of state, to Indiana. Of course, they believed that their son Stephen was innocent and pointed the finger at one of Stephen's friends. Moving would protect the family from undue harassment. There were three children in the Field family, and only one was accused of murder. The arrest and accusations were, understandably, very stressful for the rest of Stephen's family. When Marcia Norskog learned of their request, she responded disdainfully, asking where her relief is, because there is no end to the grief and pain that she lives with each day. In addition to losing her youngest child... Marsha's father suffered a massive heart attack the day that Hillary's body was found. He lingered in a coma for days, eventually losing his life. She had suffered terribly. Norskog was vocal in her opposition of Phil being released from jail and opposed the family being allowed to relocate. In fact, Marsha Norskog was extremely vocal. She did whatever she could to draw attention to the case, She asked the city to create a park in memory of her daughter, and the city declined. She appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show and sought interviews with the local press, preferably televised interviews. Norskog was both grief-addled and rage-filled at the position she found herself in as 1994 arrived. And really, who could blame her? She lost her father and her daughter in a matter of weeks. Her daughter brutally murdered, and her father collapsing from grief and shock, leading to his early demise. In January of 1994, a judge granted the field's request, and they planned to move to St. John, Indiana. St. John is actually another Chicago suburb. It's located about 50 miles, or 80 kilometers south of the city. They sought the peace and calm of a small town, and they had family in the area, which made it a good fit. St. John, Indiana is where Gail Field took her youngest child, her daughter, when Stephen was initially arrested. They hid out there for weeks while things quieted down. Eager to move on, expecting Stephen to be cleared of charges, the Fields attempted to purchase a spacious Tudor style home on a cul-de-sac. Residents of St. John had feelings about the family moving in. Feelings that they weren't afraid to share publicly. Residents lined up at the police department, first to express their displeasure at the new residents, then to request gun permits. They weren't having the feels and their troubled son move in without protecting themselves first. The folks in St. John could not understand how a judge in Illinois could let someone charged with such a serious crime out on bail, let alone let him move out of state. A resident of St. John spoke to the press, and in retrospect, his comments are chilling. In mid-January 1994, Ron Croner told the Chicago Tribune, quote, his family have become victims because of his accused crime. Croner referenced his own two young children, continuing, now we are under house arrest. Our kids cannot go out and play. When protests and a spike in gun permits didn't prompt the city to bar the Fields from moving in, a petition circulated in St. John, gathering hundreds of signatures, asking that the Field family not move to their community. The family responded with a statement, read by their lawyer at a press conference. We feel his innocence is not only a statement of his legal situation, but of actual fact Confident that this will be proven, we will stand not behind him, but beside him, as he establishes his innocence through the justice system. Well, the people of St. John were not moved by their statement. They wanted nothing to do with Stephen or his supportive family. Despite having sold their Palos Park home, the fields scrapped plans to leave the state and selected another home in Crete Township this time in Will County, Illinois. Again, they are due south of Chicago. With this move, a judge sealed the family's information, so their address was not made public. People in Crete had no idea who just moved into the area. Stephen did not enroll at the local high school. A tutor was brought in to work with him at home. I can't say what was going on with his older brother, who was college age, or his younger sister. The residence they selected, another Tudor-style home, was in a rural area, on a five-acre parcel. The five-bedroom house was not visible from the road, sitting at the end of a long driveway. The Fields paid just over a quarter of a million dollars for the home in June of 1994. Their lawyer handled the transaction, referring to his clients by first name only. One of Fields' neighbors will later tell the press they thought the family was in witness protection. They were that reserved. Marcia Norskog reaches out to the press to remind them that she doesn't know where the Fields live, because they are protected, but they know where she lives. The gray Chevy that Stephen was driving the night of Hillary's murder is gone. His parents replaced it with a teal pickup truck for him to drive at his pleasure. Other than a rowdy teenage party the summer of 1994, the fields are quiet, unremarkable, and keep to themselves. July brings the one-year anniversary of Hillary's death. The requisite news coverage of the event talks about progress in the case. The prosecution and defense are sharing information and appearing before a judge periodically to discuss discovery. But no trial date is set. Field's defense attorney, Raymond Pijan, requests a change of venue, which the court denies. There is no trial date yet, and even Pijan remarks that things are moving slowly. On July 25th, a memorial service is held at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Palos Hills, the same church where Hillary made her first communion and her funeral mass was held. Father Clement surprises everyone by leading the group and singing Happy Birthday. Her memorial is covered by local television stations. In December of 1994, there is some movement toward setting a trial date for Stephen. Three defense motions are heard at the Bridgeview Courthouse. Raymond Pigeon wants Field's arrest thrown out and asks that the search warrants for the 88 Chevy, the Field home, and garage be thrown out as well. The judge heard the motions and testimony related to the motions, and a December 14th date is set for closing arguments and his ruling. If Pijan's motion is successful, police lose the knife, Field's bloodstained clothing, and the bloodstains found in his vehicle. The prosecution counters that the Field family drove the car to the police station for further examination, and it was at the police station that streaks of blood were noticed inside the car. Feel's mother, Gail, who drove the car to the police station that day, testified that she never saw any stains in the vehicle and said that officers told Feel he should clean up his car because it was a mess. It was during this exchange, with Feel's mother present, that evidence was collected from the vehicle. Hillary's body wouldn't be discovered for another day or two. The judge ruled against Pigeon here. He allowed the blood evidence in at trial the judge also offered a warning to supporters on both sides that threats and confrontations would not be tolerated. Apparently there had been an outburst in the hallway following the earlier December hearing. Marcia Norskog, by her own admission, had addressed both Stephen and Gail Feel, calling them out for their roles in the death of her child. I don't know if she was the reason for the judge's admonition that day, But based on an interview published in the Chicago Reader on March 15, 1995, I'm guessing that she was. During this interview, she admits to addressing Stephen Field in court by quietly telling him he should kill someone else since he's already killing her. Knowing what happens next, I wonder if Norskog regrets those words. The following segment contains descriptions of graphic violence and sexual assault. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The Federal Bureau of Investigation defines serial murder as the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. Stephen has killed once, and he is going to kill again. On St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, Stephen's parents, Roger and Gail, head out to relax with friends. They make the 50-mile drive to Chicago, and honestly, I can't think of a better place to enjoy St. Patty's Day. They've planned an overnight getaway so they weren't home the morning of the 18th, when all hell breaks loose inside of their home in Crete Township. Details of what happened that day are scarce, because the perpetrator is an unreliable narrator. Others, because one of the victims, a child, will not speak of it. Finally, the second person Stephen killed, the murder that elevated him to serial killer status, he cannot share his experiences with us. On the evening of March 17th, Stephen and his older brother Roger hang out at home with their kid sister. The brothers have a few drinks, watch some television, and eventually Roger goes to bed. Around 3 a.m., Stephen goes into Roger's room. In Stephen's hands are a baseball bat. He began striking Roger with the bat. Again and again, he hits him. His big brother. The one who defended Stephen when others said terrible things about him. Stephen struck him with the bat until Roger began to convulse. Stephen watched his brother and realized that he didn't want him to, quote, die slow. So Stephen went to the kitchen and selected one of the large knives. He returns to Roger's room and stabs him in the throat, ending the convulsions and his brother's life. But Stephen wasn't done. He went down the hall to another bedroom, where his 13-year-old sister was sleeping, and Stephen raped her. He assaulted her repeatedly. When he was finished, the sun was casting an orange glow on the horizon. Stephen searches the house for weapons, money, and camping gear. He loads everything into his teal pickup truck, the car his parents bought for him to replace the Chevy that was in police impound, evidence in a murder investigation. Stephen drives away from the family home, leaving behind a dead brother, And a brutalized sister. At seven thirteen AM, a nine one one call comes in from the Field home. It was Stephen's sister. She's crying. She's asking for help. She tells them that Stephen loaded his teal pickup with guns and camping gear and drove away. Would someone please help her? When police respond to the home they find Roger Field dead. He's been beaten severely with a baseball bat, his throat crudely slashed with a knife. The youngest feel, the brave girl who called 911, is in need of medical attention. She's asking for her parents. She's asking if Roger is going to be okay. And her brother Stephen is armed and nowhere to be found. In these pre cell phone days... There's no way to reach Gail and Roger Sr., so when they arrive home, they return to a scene of chaos. Ambulances and emergency vehicles line their driveway. Their three children are dead, missing, and brutalized. In St. John, Indiana, word is out that Stephen Field is at large after killing again. In Palos Hills, police enter the home of Marcia Norskog, advising her that Stephen is armed and his location is unknown. They are prepared for the worst. Hearing the news of a brutal murder and assault in his town, Michael Einhorn, Crete's mayor, was at the city offices, waiting to see how he could support the community. As he prepared himself to handle the media onslaught, and Crete's police force searched for the missing teenager, There was a knock at the door of the city offices. Einhorn opened it to find a young man dressed in a Metallica T-shirt who said, I need to talk to somebody. I think I'm in some trouble. The mayor invited the young man into the office and then called the police who arrived and arrested Stephen Field without incident. While in custody, Stephen confessed to killing his brother, but offered no motive for the attack. He did say that he cut his throat because Roger was convulsing and, quote, stopped him from dying slow. It's unknown if he offered any commentary about the assault of his sister. This time, Stephen's parents were not standing by him. There were no jailhouse visits, but they paid for his attorney and hired one of their own. Stephen's bail was revoked. No longer a minor, no longer just a suspect, he confessed to his crimes, he sent a note to his parents that read, in part, Now I've killed two people. At his first court hearing after murdering his brother and raping his sister, a reporter called out to feel, Stephen, do you have anything to say? And in response, Stephen raised his cuffed hands, middle fingers extended. In October of 1995, Stephen pled guilty to the murder of his brother. This was his second guilty plea, and it was part of a deal that took the death penalty off the table. Gail Feal addressed the court, saying the following. Our family tried to write a victim's speech, but the number of victims and our feelings of pain and anguish were too much for us to put into words. We all knew Stephen as a loving, caring child. We have been bewildered and devastated by the horrible acts that brought us all here. To depict us otherwise does not serve justice, and we cannot forever remain silent, as we are portrayed in such an inaccurate, unfair, and hurtful light. In July of 1995, Marsha Norskog filed a wrongful death suit against Gale and Roger Feel. Norskog believed that the Feel family knew Stephen was troubled, and that there were years of bizarre, violent, and disturbing behaviors leading up to the murder of Hillary in 1993. Her suit alleged that when Stephen was in junior high school, he was abusing drugs and alcohol. He developed a fascination with Adolf Hitler and shaved his head. She further claimed that during high school, he was chronically truant. He was suspended from school no less than six times in three years and was known to bully or threaten other children. The suit went on to say that rather than curtail Stephen's freedoms or address his behavior, the fields provided him with access to money, alcohol, and weapons— even gifting him with the knife he used to murder her daughter, Stephen had unrestricted access to a car, the Chevrolet he used when he murdered Hillary. While the Field family insists they could not have foreseen his murderous actions, Stephen was working on an insanity defense in March of 1995 when he murdered his brother and assaulted his sister. In her suit, Norskog accused the Fields of negligent supervision and negligent entrustment. I've been unable to determine how this case resolved. At the end of the day, whether or not a check is written or responsibility is assigned, two families were completely undone by the actions of Stephen Feel. Now in his 40s, Stephen is serving a sentence of 100 years at the Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois. Other notable inmates at the Menard Correctional Center include Drew Peterson, and Robert Ben Rhodes. Special thanks to Allison. She suggested this case, and while the story would have fit nicely with our back-to-school episodes, Stephen is a serial killer and one who started killing at a young age. He managed to destroy his family in the process. Big thank you to Lainey of True Crime Fan Club for giving voice to Gail Feel. Please support the show by visiting our sponsor, Me Undies. You could be wearing the best underwear of your life. Go to slash gone right now. You get 20% off, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. What are you waiting for? It's slash gone. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. loading up on things from walmart yeah i used my new capital one walmart rewards card it earns unlimited five percent back on everything i buy from walmart online say what five percent back say what five percent back say what now five percent back back. with what the capital one walmart rewards card earn unlimited rewards including five percent back at walmart online on top of walmart's everyday low prices what's in your wallet terms and exclusions apply capital one na